The song you just heard was Jonathan by Elaine Brown of the Black Panther Party from her self-titled 1973 album, an ode to the bravery of Jonathan Jackson of the Black Panther Party. Jonathan and his brother George Jackson are two martyrs that we uplift this African Martyrs Day. Welcome to the People's War Radio Show. I'm Dr. Matsumela Odom. And I'm Awambi Tongu. Uhuru means freedom in Swahili, and freedom is on our minds 24-7. February 21st is the anniversary of the assassination of Malcolm X and was designated by the African People's Socialist Party as African Martyrs Day, recognized in events and celebrations throughout the African world. Let's listen to an excerpt from an African Martyrs Day speech Chairman Omali Eshetela delivered on the importance of Malcolm X to the African liberation struggle. This speech was delivered February 25th, 1995 in Oakland, California. Malcolm was on the move and he was traveling. He spent, after that, he went and spent eight more weeks in Africa where people were being organized into his organization, where people, more and more people were coming under the influence of Malcolm X. So it was a powerful kind of thing that was happening. And then, of course, as you know, on February 21st, 1965, Malcolm X 
was assassinated in Harlem, New York. But it was too late because the line of Malcolm X kept on going. It had already made itself manifest with the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. And when they built, uh, uh, in 1966, when they came out with the Black Power Demand, that was directly under the influence of Malcolm X. Stokely Carmichael used to have political education classes with Malcolm X in his apartment. Malcolm X started going into Selma, Alabama to be down there with the Civil Rights Movement. So the influence of Malcolm X to the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee became very clear. And so it was Malcolm. Malcolm was dead, you understand? They killed Malcolm in 65. But in 1966, Willie Ricks in Greensville, Greenwood, Mississippi, jumped on a, a flatbed truck and demanded black power and the world hasn't been the same. And Willie Wicks was directly under the influence of Malcolm X. That was in 1966. In 1966, the same year, in 1966 here in Oakland, California, we had a situation where the rifle clubs got organized, didn't they? When African men and women put on their black berets, right? When they put on their black leather jackets, right? Yeah. And when they put on, picked up the shotgun that Malcolm X had taught, you saw the rifle clubs, you saw the shotgun that Malcolm said everybody should have, and Huey P. Newton did it exactly and precisely because that is what Malcolm X had called for. So they were too late when they killed Malcolm, and the revolution was alive. But it wasn't just something that was happening here. Oppressed people all over the world were demanding to be free, were demanding to run their own lives. We wanted to change a situation where in some countries, in some places, even as it is today on the so-called Indian reservations, nothing but concentration camps, where the average lifespan of the people is in the 40s. Why is it that a so-called Indian is only living in the 40s on his own land, right? When the people who took the land from him are living uh, ripe old ages in comfort and the rest of it. So you have a situation where all the peoples on the planet Earth wanted to be free. By the time they killed Malcolm X, the world, the whole, in the whole world, revolution was the main trend. Revolution was happening everywhere. Revolution was happening in Asia. Revolution was happening all over Africa. Revolution had already risen up in Cuba. In fact, Malcolm X met with Fidel and met with Che Guevara and the rest of them right there in Harlem, you see. So revolution was the main, on the agenda of all the oppressed peoples in the world. And this is the period when we come to know our martyrs, the way they would kill a Malcolm X because they didn't have to kill Malcolm like that. The way they would kill Fred Hampton, they didn't have to kill Fred like that. The way they killed Bobby Hutton, little Bobby Hutton, right here in Oakland when he was 17 years old, they didn't have to kill him like that. Don't you know they could have done it just like they did with Jack Ruby, who they say killed Oswald, who they say killed Kennedy? Oh, they could have injected him with cancer. They could have made him look like he slipped in the bathtub and banged his head. They could have made it like he looked like he accidentally electrocuted himself, any kind of thing. But they had to kill him the way they killed him so that they would demoralize the masses of African people. So the idea was to terrorize the people, to make the people too afraid to fight because they know when you fight, 
you, when you fight, when you resist, you can't be defeated. That's Desi Woods. What you got to do is fight. If you fight, you will win. In today's show, we will honor our fallen heroes and martyrs of the African liberation struggle. Talk about the U.S. government counterinsurgency program to attack and contain the Black Power movement and review a new film just released on HBO Max that centers around the assassination of one of those fallen heroes. Recently, Regina King's motion picture, One Night in Miami, was released on Amazon Prime. One Night in Miami chronicles a fictional dialogue between Malcolm X, Muhammad Ali, Sam Cooke, and Jim Brown following Ali's defeat of Sonny Liston. On February 12th, Judas and the Black Messiah was released. This film highlights the FBI counterintelligence program's war against the African Revolution of the 1960s and the assassinations of Illinois Black Panther Party chairman Fred Hampton and Mark Clark. On February 20th, the Los Angeles Pan-African Film Festival is screening the 2010 documentary, 41st and Central, a history of the Black Panther Party chapter in Los Angeles. The screening is dedicated to the film's director, Gregory Everett, the son of Los Angeles Black Panther Party member, Jeffrey Everett, who recently lost his battle with COVID-19. To discuss this with us today, we have a young activist and cultural worker from Los Angeles, Honey Blue. Honey Blue is an activist, hip-hop artist, student, and a writer. Honey Blue has a forthcoming album entitled Honey Blue, The Album. She is an Africana Studies major and conducts regular political education classes with her peers. Lastly, Honey Blue is a writer for the Burning Spear newspaper. Welcome, Honey Blue. Thank you, guys. It's happy to be here. I'm very excited for today's discussion. Yeah, hoo, Honey Blue. Judas and the Black Messiah released to mixed reviews, or might I even say mixed previews. Hip-hop artist No Name and others were upset that the film centered around FBI informant Bill O'Neill. What was your initial reaction to the film? My initial reaction to the film was that, you know, there's going to be a lot of critiques, right? Um, just in terms of any revolutionary that may be depicted in Hollywood or mainstream media, which I think is very, um, you know, necessary for the, the viewers to understand. But I think it actually did a pretty um, good job in terms of telling a narrative um, from the perspective of centering the informant in regards to kind of understanding how the counterintelligence program at large used some of our people to um, turn them into informants to make sure that it, the the counterintelligence program was successful or it was running and operating efficiently. So although some things were not all implemented in the film, it's up to you know, the viewer after watching the movie to kind of do more research on the revolutionary Fred Hampton. But um, very interesting perspective. Um, although it's unfortunate, these are the things that we have to think about in terms of revolutionary organizing and um, really just moving um, with the, the right frame of mind in regards to our people when we're being under attack. Uh, what about the story of Fred Hampton? Uh, what stuck out to you about that? The story about Fred Hampton, um, you know, I think before Fred Hampton... Before the movie, as someone I, I always looked up to um, just in regards of his rhetoric about socialism and really connecting the people to directly be in the streets. And I think that was a, a part of the movie that they depicted well about his character, right? Because so many people know Fred Hampton from his 
speeches in his, um, his oratory way he was able to get across a message, but it really kind of showed the the day to day aspects of his personality and the type of brother he was. You know, very militant, very serious about the people, and um, you know, just really being hands on in teaching political education classes. Which indeed, the um, Chicago, Chicago chapter of the Black Panther Party was very prominent about teaching the political ed because we were, you know, black power as a political force was constantly being under attack, not just in the U.S. but in places, you know, like Chicago. Um, you know, Connecticut and, you know, various other Panther chapters. So I think that was very important, just the the emphasis on Fred's character and his, you know, willingness to always put the people first, no matter what happened um, with COINTELPRO and the counterinsurgency. Now, you're from Los Angeles and the film centers on Chicago, but did anything stand out specifically interesting to you that you feel relates to uh, Los Angeles. Uh, I was thinking about the way in which he was organizing the street gangs and stuff like that. Um, yes, most definitely. Um, I think that first thing comes to mind is just uh, the L.A. chapter um, with, you know, Bunchy Carter and John Huggins, who uh, was, you know, assassinated due to um, a confrontation between the US organization that was also started in the L.A. area. But that stuck out the most because, again, the party at large, the Black Panther Party at large, was being under attack due to the counterintelligence program started by J. Edgar Hoover. So it wasn't just chapters, um, you know, just a Chicago chapter, but in L.A., there was constant attacks in raids and even, you know, um, child care centers in the Los Angeles uh, chapter started by the Panther Party were attacked um, almost regularly since the inception of that chapter. So... You know, and, and Bunchy Carter himself was a part of the Slosh and Renegades at the time, which was a, uh, you know, a notable street gang. But, you know, through his own journey into consciousness, he he began to dedicate his life to the people. So um, I think that was something that we can definitely relate to in terms of Los Angeles and really feeling that um, connection between, you know, the constant attack against the political force of the people and the the, the work of the people being done. This film uh, was released to a lot of anticipation in the African community. People are discussing the film on corners, campuses, coffee shops, and in cyberspace. So what are some of your comrades and contemporaries saying about the film? You know, the first, when I saw the movie, um, I saw it with a good comrade of mine who we, we organized with. Um, and, you know, just after watching the movie, discussing it, um, again, we knew of some of the critiques that, people were talking about before the film as far as, you know, they, they left out this part of Fred Hampton's, uh, you know, his oratory and, and his political, um, you know, uh, rhetoric. But again, we as, as scholars, right, and, and all of us as African working class people that are fighting for the, the struggle of African liberation and Black power have to understand that it is our duty to to teach what we already know or if we're learning new information to do that research so that way we can continuously grow the knowledge of you know what is happening so I think that you know comrades are definitely saying that this helped to them to really just do further research about Fred Hampton because some people didn't even know about COINTELPRO some people didn't they knew about Fred Hampton they seen his face but they really didn't understand um how hard of a working man that he was and how young he was to be only 21 years old you know uh, being the leader and the chairman of this chapter is a really big responsibility for someone that's, you know, coming almost out of adolescence and into young adulthood. So 
Um, you know, there, there's some, there's a lot of buzz, but technically the movie's only been out what like uh, it's only been like five days or like well not you know it came out on the I think the twelfth and it's the sixteenth today. So you know there, there isn't much people people can say. Um, I think that it, it needs some more time to digest, but it definitely is a is a good starting point for those who have never heard or are not really familiar with COINTELPRO and Fred Hampton to, um, you know, do more research if they are wishing to, you know, pay tribute and homage to our African martyr for sure. You are listening to the People's War Radio Show, produced by WBPU, Black Power 96.3 FM in St. Petersburg, Florida. Our guest today is Honey Blue. You're working on an article about COINTELPRO and other counterinsurgency programs to defeat the Panthers in Los Angeles. What is the history of the Black Panther Party in Los Angeles? How were they founded? Indeed. So, um, you know, so the Panther Party uh, in Los Angeles was started by Bunchy Carter and John Huggins. But how exactly that came into be was during the time when the chairman, Huey Newton, was uh, incarcerated. Um, our good brother, I believe it was um, Geronimo. He thought it would be a good idea for Bunchy to lead the organization and lead the African Revolution with the party in um, Los Angeles. So he decided to take on the role of doing that. And at first he was pretty hesitant because he wasn't too sure about, you know, if he's ready to lead. But after, you know, seeing the reaction to Huey being incarcerated and how that was affecting the party, he thought it was necessary that LA be organized in such a manner. So he turned his you know, skills with the streets and really try to organize um, L.A. to be this powerhouse that it was becoming. And, you know, in 1969 through 1970s, when we started to see a lot of hell um, being caught with the party in Los Angeles, um, there was, again, several different attacks on the Panther headquarters um, in Los Angeles. It was located um, on South Central Avenue. And, you know, just these different accounts, uh, police raids, right? over SWAT teams um, outside of the Panther um, chapter was really, you know, it, it was really damaging to those who were organizing. But, you know, leaders like Geronimo J. Praga would also come down and help the L.A. chapter. And, you know, when there was uh, the incident in the police raid where, you know, police were outside and uh, attacking the, the Panther house in which Geronimo um, insisted that, you know, Panthers be armed and to, to protect themselves, right, against what was happening. So, you know, as the, the start of this all happening, we see from the leader being assassinated and how the L.A. chapter was birthed from that and how it was constantly under attack because also the L.A. chapter was growing in numbers. I believe in about the first couple of months, it grew about 500 to 1,000 members very quickly. And John Huggins, who was also, again, organizing with Bunchy Carter, who was the the partner of Erica Huggins, who was also organizing the New Haven chapter of the Panther Party and all of that, were only 23 and 26 years old, right? So these are two young men having to deal with about the capacity of 500 to 1,000 people on a consistent basis. And so COINTELPRO saw the progression of the LA chapter um, not only growing, but being headed by someone who was already known in the streets, Bungie Carter, um, again, part of the Sauce and Renegades and things like that. So um, it, it was the intention of COINTELPRO to make sure they were destroying and continuously um, wreaking havoc on the chapter. 
and which eventually that kind of led to the the tactics the tactics and um infiltration of Quanto Pro that led to their assassination later on um of a bunch of Carter and John Huggins at UCLA um in 1969 so you know there's there's a lot a long history that really goes into details but that's a a, a kind of overview of the history and and what it came to be and the fate of what happened to the LA chapter, the Black Panther Party. Huru, a plurality of the Black Panthers killed by the U.S. counterinsurgency against the African Revolution of the 1960s were killed in Los Angeles and Southern California. The film, Judas and the Black Messiah, refers to the assassinations of John Huggins and Bunchy Carter, as you've noted. Shortly after their murders, Elaine Brown released the song Assassination on her 1969 album, Seize the Time. Let's take a listen to it. You know I heard the people say, what will you give in your way? I saw them turn, stop, and listen to the people cry and say, just a life is all I had out in a parade. Of centuries, people cried out and said, please, please, we want freedom, liberation, and just some help in this civilization. And though I heard the people say, what will you give in your way? I saw them turn, stop. Listen to the people cry and say just a life is all I had out. What did they do? What did they say to justify speaking this way? Hey, they just fought and often cried, and then they turned around, were shot down, and died. Oh, but I heard the people say. What will you give in your way? I saw them turn, stop, and listen to the people cry and say just a life. It's all I had at Bunchy and John. Walked through this maze, they touched a million lives in a thousand ways, three score and ten. Never knew them. Twenty six and twenty three is all there were. Oh, can't you see? Didn't you hear the people say, What will you give in your way? I saw them turn, stop, and listen to the people cry and say, Just a life is all I had. That was Elaine Brown from her 1969 album, Seize the Time, with Assassination. So, Honey Blue, you told us about the assassinations of Bunchy Carter and John Huggins. What else can you tell us about uh, the Black Panther Party or the Black Power Movement in Los Angeles? Well, one thing I can most definitely say about the Black Power Movement in Los Angeles is that due to Pro in you know the 60s, and it being infiltrated 
um, again, led to the assassination and the tactics used against COINTELPRO, but also um, different informants that were suggested had assassinated uh, John Huggins and Bunchy Carter from the US organization. Um, there's a lot of different implications in regards to that specific incident that maybe it would uh, was an informant, which uh, later documents had showed that it was an informant from the US organization. Um, that contributed to the assassination of both of the brothers. But again, if we kind of go back into the conversation earlier about what was shown in the film and how informants were created, I think it helps to us to understand that well, what led these brothers or what led these these people to do these acts against our people to even do them at all. Um, and it's not to uh, shy away from who was responsible for the deaths of John Huggins and Bunchy Carter, but it's to assess what may have went um, into play and in breeding these informants to destroy our own people, right? Because Black Power at the time was a was a global um, political uh, ideology that was being embraced by Africans internationally, and so it was beyond what was happening in certain chapters like LA and, and things like that. So we, I think, we have to ask ourselves these questions. Um, but that directly shows right now in LA um, as well. The counterinsurgency definitely. Um, did a lot of, you know, work in, in creating division and some, some type of confusion in Los Angeles. You know, Los Angeles is known for, uh, you know, Hollywood film and people coming to, to chase their dreams and things like that. And, you know, revolutionary organizing is, is for sure needed um, at a more higher rate now more than ever in Los Angeles because, you know, Africans are, are being pushed out due to gentrification um, and, we have a, a strong and bold history there, not just politically, um, but, you know, even culturally as well. And we see the cultural aspects in places like Lemert Park and the Crenshaw District being upheld in Los Angeles. But again, we have to move past this cultural nationalist perspective and really move into political power. And again, it's asking ourselves, although that we have undergone all of these tactics um, with the counterintelligence program, the counterinsurgency um, that are continuously also being practiced to us in this day and time. But how can we move our mindset and move our people to to organize and build around this understanding of building African unity and black power in this day and time? And so, um, you know, it was definitely affected. But I think the question remains is, is what are we going to do with the masses of Africans that are still here so we can preserve the revolutionary um, fortitude that needs to be upheld right now in Los Angeles for for the future of Africans in Los Angeles. Yeah, that's good. That's interesting because, like you said, one of the things that I noticed in the article that you're writing about the counterinsurgency in Los Angeles is you're really intent on showing that they tried to defeat the African liberation struggle, but Many of you and you know your young comrades are intent on uh, holding up the legacy of uh, the Black Panther Party as well as you know uh, the African liberation struggle. So, uh, what are some ways through which uh, you all are doing that? Um, yes, so um, I currently organize with uh, New Era Long Beach, and uh, New Era Long Beach is a just one chapter of New Era Nation or New Era Detroit. That was started by um, a couple of brothers and sisters, Brother Zeke and Kiera and their comrades in Detroit, just to 
um, protect and preserve the community that was um, undergoing police brutality and domestic, you know, colonialism and terrorism in Detroit. And so there's about 16 plus chapters and um, a good brother, um, Isaiah X and, um, and I have been working to get that chapter built and start this really, you know, this again, revolutionary organizing and, and embracing the political ed and implementing the African masses in Long Beach, but trying to again, reach the regional area and, and county of LA at large um, to understand that the counterinsurgency didn't, didn't succeed at all it's up to the people to awaken back into consciousness and really walk into consciousness because it's one thing to to walk around with the consciousness but do nothing to organize the masses of the people that are undergoing neocolonialism every single day it's about what can we do with this information and how can we do what the panthers were doing how can we do what our ancestors were doing that we can continue to do today and i think organizing new era long beach has helped a lot also, the African Black Coalition, which is a um, cadre and coalition of Black students in UCs and Cal States um, within the Black Student Unions at the colleges, organized together to do similar work as well as far as you know food programs and political education classes and really bringing the college campus to um, the community and bridging that gap between the two and also feeding our people the the understanding of who we are, how we came to be here, and what work we need to continue to do that was stopped because of the assassinations of our leaders and um, just due to different tactics used against us so we can be against each other, but we have to understand we should never be against each other, right? Um, We have to really be alert and concise about those who may sway us from our goal at hand, and some of those people may be in our um, within our race, but we we have to move uh, strong and, and steadily because you know the war still continues, but the revolution will also still continue. So those are some things we've been doing down here in Los Angeles and Long Beach and respective areas. Four days after Fred Hampton was murdered, Los Angeles PD attempted to raid the Black Panther Party headquarters in Los Angeles. This raid reveals the attack against Fred Hampton as a part of a globally coordinated assault against the African liberation struggle that killed many of our leaders from Patrice Lumumba to Malcolm X and beyond. The documentary 41st and Central Chronicles, the LA Black Panther Party and their heroic survival of this raid. What can you tell us about the 41st and Central event? The events happening on 41st and Central was, you know, a series of events that, that really kind of started from 1969 to about 1970. And in April of 1969, Hundreds of Panthers were meeting on the second floor of the Black Panther Party's Southern California chapter's headquarters, um, which again was 4115 South Central Avenue in Los Angeles. And at the time, there were hundreds of LAPD officers from the Newton Street Division surrounding the building. So again, with guns, ammunition, and really just trying to threaten the Panthers that were inside. And the chapter's leader at the time, which was Geronimo Pratt, um, instructed the Panthers to turn off the lights and arm them with um, you know, just to make sure that they were defending themselves. And so that was one of the primary events that kind of that happened and shifted um, the militancy of that party because of the direct attacks against um, our people and our leaders within the Black Panther Party. And then after that, just a month later, on May 1st, 1969, 
the LAPD raided the LABPP office um, and nine Panthers were arrested in the raid and two other LA Panthers were also arrested in the same day. So it's about a two week period around this time, the LAPD made 56 arrests with 42 of them being Panthers. So, you know, you think about that, right? 42 of the 56 arrests were Panthers. So you, you've got a, a good chunk of our brothers and sisters and comrades who were placed into, you know, these prisons, right? Which we understand are just modern day slavery, right? So what is going on behind these walls that we may, may not even be seeing that are happening to our brothers and sisters and our Panthers during that time? Um, you know, so those were some of the key events that happened. And then, you know, moving down again, 1969, still the LAPD, would just, they would uh, deploy SWAT, you know, SWAT teams, um, warrants being out for arrest, bringing helicopters, tanks, trucks, I mean, you name it. It's over like 400 police officers um, in the race surrounding the building. And I think that, you know, sometimes in, in this day and age, in this context, we we may not see it often. And sometimes we can't even fathom around 400 police cars, you know, being uh, attacked at a party that was, you know, creating childcare programs, right? Creating breakfast programs and feeding our people, clothing our people. Um, so it's very interesting just to really see the what the perspective was of, of Hoover who created this program, but also just, you know, have, we have to humanize the, the, our people that were in these accounts and that were in these certain situations, right? You know, you're, you're having a clash or you're, you're organizing and then all of a sudden you've got the whole SWAT team and LAPD unit outside of your window and, and what are you supposed to do? So, um, you know, those were some of the events that had happened um, during that time in L.A., all right, so yeah, back in 2013, I had the privilege of bringing George Everett and Roland Freeman down to a college I was uh, attending um, for uh, a screening of 41st and Central. Uh, I know that uh, George Everett uh, just passed away recently at a very, very young age from COVID-19. So uh, that impact really is, I think, having uh, an impact on on the community, but also really on a community of revolutionary uh, African working class uh, filmmakers. Uh, Everett himself, his dad, was a member of the Black Panther Party. And I still don't even know if the film itself has gone commercial or not. At that time, it hadn't uh, gone commercial because he he was trying to make sure that uh, his, his struggle spoke uh, to the community and from the perspective of the community. Shortly after uh, that film, uh, uh, shortly after I brought him down to San Diego, uh, Roland um, had passed away and his brother Ronald uh, had passed away as well. So, yeah, I really lift them up, too, as, um, uh, you know, uh, African revolutionaries who, who really uh, stood up for the cause. Um, what about Bastards of the Party? You ever seen Bastards of the Party? No, I've never seen that either, man. Y'all throwing some some films at me. I I for sure got to tap into. <laughs> okay, yeah, go on and check that one out because it was produced in the early two thousands by a guy by the name of Clay Sloan. Uh, they call him Bone uh, from Athens Park. You've seen him in a lot of different movies. He's in Training Day and stuff like that. Wow. Um, uh, so so <clears throat> he was reading a book, and a book uh, had a section about the. Uh, military defeat of the African Revolution of the 1960s, uh, namely the war against the Panthers in Los Angeles. And uh, what it said was it talked about the creation of the Crips and Bloods 
which came subsequent to the overthrow of the Black Panther Party. And it said that the Black Panther Party were the bastard offspring of the uh, Black Power uh, uh, movement um, or, or something like that, which is where they get this idea of, of bastards of the party. And many of the OGs at that time say for sure that many of the guys that end up becoming the OGs, they remember these guys coming around, uh, attending political education classes, seeing them at their community, seeing them at the community centers and things like that. So, um, what impact do you think the defeat of the Black Panther Party in the African Revolution of the 1960s had on the growth of gangs and the infestation of our community with the legal drug economy? Right. So I think this, the counterinsurgency, right, in the, the um, upcoming presidencies of Richard Nixon and then leading into the Reagan era really um, just kind of showed how the, the the downfall and really the hardships of our people were starting to to get grow deeper, right? And because we didn't necessarily have this leadership of the Panther Party anymore on a national level, and also just because of some of our African martyrs, like you know Malcolm X and um, you know we were assassinated, it was very hard. And Martin Luther King Jr. as well. Don't want to forget him, but um, it was very hard for for Africans and Black people at the time to really um, find an outlet to express what was going on and so the you know richard nixon with the different drug policies that were in prohibition laws that were going on during the time um and then again leading to the reagan era of just the illicit drug economy um really showed how the crack epidemic was the the downfall for a lot of africans leading to things like addiction and, and then later on our folks being incarcerated due to you know, this illegal drug economy, right, which was at the hands of imperialists in America. So I think that while sometimes in mass media may portray our people to be, you know, doing drugs and then, you know, contributing to basically to our own demise, it's like, okay, well, how did these again drugs get into the community and what allowed them to stay for so long? And then for the um, terms that of the presidents during these times, how were they implementing uh, sentencing laws for those who were incarcerated for uh, taking crack cocaine or even having them? And then, of course, we know the different types of, um, you know, sentencing that happened with powder cocaine and, um, you know, just the, the cocaine in its purest form, which was um, also just a, a very big part of what was happening during the time. Um, in terms of drug sentencing in regards to that. So you definitely see the implications of what happened because of the party was, was you know, attacked and destroyed at that time and how that led the African working class to be, to be susceptible, susceptible to what was happening with the illicit drug economy. And, you know, so we were primary targets of that. And it was very hard and we see it, it still can be very hard up, up to this point to really find thorough and consistent leadership, but we have to understand like what were the root causes of the illicit drug economy and how were they upheld. Um, and this even goes today with you know the, the 1994 crime bill that was co-written by Joe Biden, who's our president today, that directly contributed to that um, the sentencing that came from you know the drug prohibition laws that were started from you know Nixon, Reagan, Bush, and etc. So you know um, these are just some things that that 
we have to think about and really pay attention to. You are listening to the People's War Radio Show, produced by WBPU, Black Power 96.3 FM in St. Petersburg, Florida. Our guest today is Honey Blue. February 21st is the anniversary of the assassination of Malcolm X. At the first Congress of the African People's Socialist Party held in Oakland, California, in September 1981, a resolution was passed that marked the significance of Malcolm X in the struggle for the liberation of our people. Mwambi and I are going to read from that resolution. The struggle of African people to liberate our national homeland, Africa, to resist oppression and exploitation, and to overthrow the system of imperialism and advance the cause of world socialism has seen hundreds and thousands of our people make the ultimate heroic sacrifice, the sacrifice of life itself. The history of our resistance has been written in blood and flames. It has been punctuated by the courageous examples of such martyrs as Nat Turner, Stephen Biko, Patrice Lumumba, Walter Rodney, Nihanda Nayakasinkana, Fred Hampton and Mark Clark, Amokar Cabral, and Lawrence Mann, co-founder of the African People's Socialist Party. Historically, the oppressors of African people have attempted to turn history upside down and present the heroic examples of our freedom fighters as evidence of the futility, the hopelessness of our cause for political independence, African liberation, and world socialism. In many instances, our oppressors have succeeded in demoralizing great numbers of our people by using the examples of brutally murdered African freedom fighters to prove the invincibility of imperialism and the permanence of African oppression and exploitation. The African People's Socialist Party rejects and denounces this reactionary view of the bourgeoisie and calls on all African revolutionaries of all countries to proclaim February 21st, the anniversary of the 1965 imperialist assassination of Malcolm X as the Day of the African Martyr. The African People's Socialist Party calls on all African revolutionaries of all countries to take command of the history of our people's struggle for political independence, African liberation, and socialism by taking command of the definition of that history and resistance. The African People's Socialist Party calls on all African revolutionaries of all countries to raise high in a revolutionary manner the heroic memory of all our fallen martyrs of all those in every city, village, community, and country where they fell as evidence of the determination of our people to fight every battle on every front until liberty has been won. The African People's Socialist Party calls on all African revolutionaries of all countries to initiate special ceremonies and programs in every community where an African revolutionary has fallen and to raise the memory of our fallen freedom fighters to its proper revolutionary and historical significance. The African People's Socialist Party calls on all members to win the masses within the U.S. in all mass organizations where the African People's Socialist Party has influence to unite with this resolution and calls on every party unit, region, and organization to take out this call to the masses and to actively work to institutionalize February 21st as the Day of the African Martyr. You are listening to the People's War Radio Show, produced by WBPU, Black Power 96.3 FM in St. Petersburg, Florida.
Our guest today is Honey Blue. So, Honey Blue, we are honoring African Martyrs Day with this episode. Do you want to speak to some specific martyrs and the impact they've had on you? I know that you are especially fond of Thomas Sankara. Yes, indeed. Um, Thomas Sankara was uh, somebody that when I actually recently had found out about him last year during my you know, um, endeavor in my studies, and one thing that I really appreciated about Thomas Sankara um, was just his dedication to the education of his people in Burkina Faso um, and, you know, really showing the the strength behind, you know, what organizing and really standing with and working with the people can show. And he accomplished so much in his, you know, short term before he was assassinated by the coup. Um, but, you know, Stephen, uh, Stephen Biko was also somebody that, you know, I was familiar with when I was young that I want to speak on as well because, when I learned about him, I think I was in high school um, of just, you know, being what they would call the leader of the black consciousness movement. But I think that he himself was just, you know, really dedicating himself to the, also the educational aspect and really instilling within Africans that it's up to us to really fight for our liberation and to bring into consciousness what need we need to learn as far as, you know, um, our history and how we can move forward together. Um, so, you know, I want to call on the name of Stephen Biko and, and for sure, um, you know, Malcolm X, uh, Sophia Bakari, uh, Desi Woods, um, George Jackson, Jonathan Jackson. Um, there's a plethora, you know, more I, I can name Kwame Ture, um, but just to name a few, I, I like to speak on their names. Ashe. Honey Blue, on that note, you have a new song dropping next week entitled Fully Loaded and Fully Loaded. You pay tribute to some African freedom fighters as well as other African women who came before you. I knew one day I would understand my purpose And it goes way beyond Spending rhymes and writing verses I do this for the people and I do this for the children Assalamualaikum to Rosa Parks and Huey Newton I'm fully loaded, baby, I'm charged up And they know stopping me until my time is all up Yeah, I'm fully loaded, baby, I'm charged up And they know stopping me until I get the job done Best believe that Don't be afraid of what you see But you better be shook for the God in me I said, I said, I do this for the people, not just for the fame. I'm making bread. I knew I had a voice and no, I ain't afraid to use it because I spit hot like Queen Latifah in the flavor unit. Came into this game fully stretched and prepared. That's why my music gonna be hot to 3010. Who said a woman like me can't come and shake up a scene? Get all the MCs going weak at the knees. They never want to pay respect to the ladies in the game. Shout out to TMPC Blue, Unspoken Views, Il Camille, Lady of Rage, Shantae, and rest of power to my baby girl, Alice J. Without y'all, music wouldn't really be the same. We have a voice not simply here to entertain. We coming very thorough in this hip-hop game, and we gon' keep on shining on till they finally know our name. I'm fully loaded, baby, I'm charged up, and they no stopping me until my time is all up. Yeah, I'm fully loaded, baby, I'm charged up, and they no stopping me until I get the job done. Best believe that. Don't be afraid of what you see, but you better be shook for the God in me. I'm fully loaded, baby, I'm charged up. That was Honey Blue's new track, Fully Loaded.
So we saw the African Revolution of the 1960s suffer a military defeat. Today we see African resistance rising up around the world. Some people say that the 1960s was merely a dress rehearsal. What do you think the future holds for the African liberation struggle? I think the future is very bright for Africans in the African liberation struggle um, through, you know, tools like, you know, the, the Burning Spear, which is the official paper of the African People's Socialist Party, um, being a, a great tool for political education and really just instilling our people with, you know, the political knowledge that we need um, in terms of African internationalism and, uh, you know, just the different perspectives we need to have to know that we are the ones that are going to lead our revolution. It's not up to voting certain, you know, white people who seem that they're in solidarity with um, our movement, but it's really about, you know, selecting ourselves and selecting, you know, um, the leadership of Amwalia Shetela and the party um, and, you know, just other revolutionary comrades that also may be in solidarity, like, you know, orgs like New Era Long Beach, as stated before, or the African Black Coalition um, in Los Angeles to to really you know take ourselves seriously it's up to us to lead this revolution it's up to us to get the knowledge and if we have the knowledge it's up to us to teach it to those um as you know master teachers that that we're breeding um you know and that we are who we've become so um i think that if we continue to work and and select and choose ourselves first we will definitely see a brighter future for africans not just nationally but internationally oh yeah thanks for that honey blue thanks for that we want to close the show by calling out the names of some of the fallen heroes and martyrs of the African liberation struggle. Nahanda Nayakasinkana was a leader in the resistance to white rule during the late 19th century in what is now Zimbabwe. She was executed by Hain on April 27, 1898. Nat Turner led over 100 Africans to rise up and fight the colonial slave owners for three days until the rebellion was crushed by a force of 3,000 white police and militia. Turner eluded his pursuers for six weeks, but was finally captured, tried, and hanged on November 11, 1831. Patrice Lumumba, prime minister of the newly and nominally independent Congo, was assassinated by CIA-led mercenaries in January 1961. Stephen Biko was a leader in the anti-apartheid movement in South Africa. In 1977, he was brutally beaten by police and died on September 12th, naked and shackled to a floor in police custody. Walter Rodney was an African revolutionary and working class intellectual from Guyana. He organized for African unity and exposed colonial and neo-colonial Africans in the Caribbean and on the continent. He was assassinated on June 13, 1980, when a bomb was placed in his car. Amilcar Cabral, leader of the West African Liberation Movement against Portugal of the African Party for the Independence of Guinea-Bissau and Cape Verde, was assassinated in 1973. Thomas Sankara, leader of Burkina Faso, was assassinated on October 15, 1987, in a Western-backed coup d'etat. Robert Mangaliso Sabukwe, the leader of the African liberation struggle in occupied Azania, died on February 27, 1978, after he was denied medical treatment. In Guinea-Bissau, Titina Sila served as a soldier in the war for independence against the Portuguese. She was killed in combat 
and is today remembered as a martyr in the fight for Guinea-Bissau's independence, along with Amakar Cabral, who was also killed in the struggle. In IT, Sanate Belair was executed by the French for her role in the revolution. La Moulatres Solitude was part of the rebellion against slavery in Guadeloupe. There is a statue in honor of La Moulatres Solitude, which depicts her with a pregnant belly because she was executed shortly after giving birth. Malcolm X, assassinated by the U.S. government, February 21st, 1965. Martin Luther King was assassinated by the U.S. government, April 4th, 1968. Fred Hampton, chairman of the Illinois Black Panther Party chapter, was assassinated on December 4th, 1969. Mark Clark, another member of the Illinois Black Panther Party, was also murdered in the raid that killed Fred Hampton. Huey P. Newton, co-founder of the Black Panther Party, was assassinated on August 22, 1989. Lil Bobby Hutton, the treasurer and first recruit of the Black Panther Party in Oakland, was assassinated on April 6, 1968. Lawrence Mann, co-founder of the African People's Socialist Party, was killed January 10, 1973. Maurice Bishop was an African revolutionary and prime minister of Grenada. He came to power as the head of the New Jewel Movement. Maurice Bishop was executed in a military coup supported by the United States government on October 19, 1983. Jonathan Jackson, brother of George Jackson, was martyred on August 7, 1970, in an attempt to free his brother George Jackson and other comrades who had been unjustly imprisoned by the state of California. George Jackson was assassinated by prison officials on August 21, 1971. Both brothers were members of the Black Panther Party. John Africa and 10 members of the MOVE organization, including five children, were murdered by Philadelphia police on May 13, 1985. Bunchy Carter, founder and leader of the Black Panther Party of Southern California, was assassinated January 17, 1969. John Huggins, originally of the New Haven Black Panther Party chapter, was also assassinated that day on the campus of University of California, Los Angeles. Carl Hampton, a leader of the Black Panther Party in Houston, Texas, was assassinated by police on July 26, listening to the People's War Radio Show, produced by WBPU, Black Power 96.3 FM in St. Petersburg, Florida. Our guest today was Honey Blue. WBPU is a project of the African People's Education and Defense Fund, a nonprofit organization whose mission is to defend the human rights and civil rights of the African community and address the grave disparities faced by African people in education, health care, and economic development. 
For more information on the African People's Education and Defense Fund, visit APEDF.org. Episodes of the People's War Radio Show are available on the Black Power Talks podcast on wubp.podbean.com. For updates and resources to fight the coronavirus or to volunteer with Project Black Onk, visit developmentforafrica.org. We'd like to thank our guest, Honey Blue, for joining us today. We'd also like to thank you, our listeners, for tuning in. Bye.